very special guest now joining us here on the podcast. Chrissy Cornwell is the coordinator of softball umpires for the uh, SEC, the ASUN, the Sun Belt, the OVC. Perhaps most important, she's in charge of blue for the St. Pete Clearwater Elite Invitational, which we all hope will be back with us early next year. Perhaps more important for this group, but an entirely different podcast. She's also a mental health specialist. Uh, so maybe that, maybe she'll come back next week and help us all out. But Christy, thanks for joining us. Um, and uh, uh, shout out to Smitty. Uh, thanks for uh, helping put this together. Why don't you start our, our discussion, Michelle? Yeah, actually, I really appreciate your time, Chrissy. And I, th I think I'm speaking for all of us. We're excited to be able to talk with you to further the explanation of um, some of the things we've seen this year. So I'll just kind of dive right in with um, a couple of questions on, um, on, on what the year has been like, I guess, for umpires, because we've seen for the players and the coaches how hard things have been. But what's it like in the world of an umpire? You know, first of all, thank you for having me. And it's, it's always a pleasure. I, I umpired many of your games and I love listening to you on the podcast and I like being your phone a friend. So thank you. This is a pleasure. So I appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, I think it's been a really tough year for the umpires, just as it's been for you all. We have had to learn how to operate in a very different way, um, just as you all have had to. You're broadcasting from home. You, you, you know, I heard uh, Beth and, and Michelle, I heard you comment yesterday in the uh, OU Georgia game that you don't know who's in the bullpen because you're not on site. You can't see, you don't have eyes on things. Um, so it, it's very different. And some key differences, I think, that have risen to the surface that, that I have to admit, even I underestimated coming into the season is we didn't have any reps. Normally what happens in the life of an umpire is after the college season, then they go into summer ball season and they go into camps. They go to, they go to academies, Diamond Umpire Academy. We run camps. Other, other coordinators run camps where the umpires are out on the field working the summer ball games and, and folks like me and my staff, a lot of World Series umpires, um, we are watching their games and evaluating them and giving them feedback and giving them polishing points. And that's all summer. We lost that. Um, many of our states were shut down. There were a few here and there, but not the volume that we had. Our camps were cut in half um, because we just didn't have a place to do them. And then normally in fall ball, what happens is we start in September, the student athletes come back on campus. They're having tournaments. They're having fall ball tournaments. They're working bullpens. And we're right up in there. And so we're umpiring those fall ball tournaments and we're umpiring those bullpens. And we lost those reps. And then in January, after everybody comes back from break, we're working the bullpens. We're working the practice sessions. We're coming and umpiring inner squads. And we lost that. We didn't have COVID protocol. So we weren't allowed on campus. So for a full year, Blue is, you know, sitting on the couch and, you know, they're, they're setting up imaginary bases in their backyard and, you know, they're, they're playing video games with baseball and softball to do anything that they can uh, to stay physically fit, but we just didn't get the reps. And I think we underestimated how valuable those reps are. It took us a lot longer to hit our stride um, and to get, get comfortable back on the field. And, and some of the umpires still haven't hit that, that comfort level. So it's been really a challenge. That's been the biggest thing. Um, the other thing I, I've noticed and that I've heard from my umpires is it's really hard on them this year. It's really stressful. Um, part of what we love about umpiring is the relationships that we form with each other, just like you all with your teammates. Um, you still have contact now with people that you played with 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And the umpire world is like that as well. And, and they can go out and umpire right now, but they can't get together after the game and, and have, have, have chalk talk, as we call it. They can't 
They can't download and talk about the game. They can't be together. They can do it virtually, but it's different. Um, when those umpires are in the trenches together and the fans are yelling at them and the coaches are yelling at them and they're yelling at themselves inside their head because they know they just missed that pitch or they know they're not so sure about that call. That brotherhood is so important for them to be able to download and help each other. And, hey, I saw that you did this and maybe you should have done that. And, and they can't do that because of COVID. Um, they can't ride together. They can't share hotel rooms. They don't have that camaraderie that they have. And they're COVID testing. They're sticking big giant Q-tips up their nose three times a week. And they have to drive 45 minutes to FedEx and drop it off. And it's, it's just been really stressful for them. So they're tired. They're road weary. Um, and the lack of reps, I think that combination has just been a, a perfect storm in the wrong direction. That's just made it really, really challenging for the umpires this year. Yeah, I appreciate that explanation of, of what the umpires are going through because we see firsthand visually the players and the coaches and all that, but we never get to hear what the umpires are going through. And, and that was enlightening to me to hear about that. I mean, especially even as analysts and play-by-play, we drive together as a team usually to the game. Right. So I can imagine umpires, you know, typically doing the same thing and not able to. So yeah, there's there's all those different um, factors that, that play a role in all this. So my next question kind of leads into... Um, some of the information earlier in the year that we got about the strike zone. And I think the one thing that, that stands out a lot are calls, strike zones, balls and strikes, because every single pitch an umpire is having to make a decision and he's 50% right and 50% wrong, depending on which team you're cheering for. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's, a, it's a thankless job. Um, but, but as far as the consistency of the strike zone, I, I do agree with the reps. I think that's a big part of it, but what else do you have the umpires working on so that we can get back to a, a consistent strike zone at times when it seems like maybe it's not? Yeah, you know, there's so many factors that go into having a consistent strike zone. And, and the number one factor is reps. That's the number one thing that we have to have in order to get good at our craft. You know, Smitty, you, you probably couldn't count with a calculator how many pitches you threw in a bullpen just working on, you know, this pitch or that pitch over and over and over throughout the course of your career. Um, what we've been working on, you know, since I've been a coordinator and even since I was an umpire, I umpired for 20 something years is, is accuracy and consistency. Once upon a time, we were taught when I was just a little baby umpire coming up, we were taught just be consistent. If you're going to call that ball two two balls off the, off, off the plate, if you're going to call that a strike, okay, but just call it the whole game. Well, now we want that consistency, but we also need accuracy. It's not fair to the, to the batters that train their eye that that ball that's a ball off the plate or in the river, Smitty, as, you're, as you like to say, in that river, that space between the plate and, and the chalk of the batter's box, they're trained that that's not a strike. And then if, if the umpire starts calling it a strike, it throws them out of whack. And so what we're really trying to do is to call an accurate strike zone as it's written in the rule book. And a lot of people don't understand what that is. So let me just have my five minute commercial here. Um, the bottom of the zone is the top of the ball at the top of the knee. So that ball that's even with the front knee at the front of the plate, that ball that's even with the knee should be called a strike. A good drop ball pitcher can put that ball right on that front knee and the catcher's going to catch it mid shin. It doesn't look like a strike. And so we get a lot of moans and groans when we call that a strike because it doesn't look like a strike, but that is a strike. That ball can come in and drop off the table and be a strike at the front of the plate. On the inside and the outside corner, the ball has to touch the plate. So the ball is 3.82 inches, I think. 
and the, the space in between the plate and the chalk is six inches. And so the ball can be entirely in that middle space, not touching the plate and not touching the chalk, and it would be a ball. It should not be called a strike. And so we're working on getting that accurate. And so in bringing the corners in, what we realized is we were squeezing the top and the bottom of the zone. In real life, in the past, even though the zone was written top of the ball, at the top of the knee, what most umpires were calling was bottom of the ball at the top of the knee. That's what you're used to seeing. That's what the coaches are used to seeing. And the philosophy was, well, then if we missed one, now it's top of the ball, the top of the knee. So it gave us a little flexibility to miss some pitches and still be a hittable pitch for the batter and not be egregious. So we're trying to call an accurate zone, which means we're trying to widen that, make it bigger at the bottom of the zone by calling it accurately top of the ball at the top of the knee. And also up at the top of the zone, the top of the zone is top of the ball beneath the sternum at or beneath the sternum. So for the ladies out there, it's where our sports bra is. We all know where our sports bra goes. The top of the ball has to be below the sports bra. And in the past, what you saw in real life is we were calling the bottom of the ball, the belly button or the bottom of the ball, the belt, which is what we're used to seeing at baseball. So when we brought the corners in and we tried to call accurate corners, then we realized, man, the strike zone got really small because we weren't calling it accurately at the top of the bottom. And so we're trying to now call it accurately at the top and the bottom of the zone. And we're just not good at it yet. We're, we're still working on it. We're still trying to figure out how to do that, what that looks like. We're still trying to train our brain that that ball that the catcher is catching mid shin, that's a changeup or a drop ball really is a strike and we have to call it. And so we're still in our adjustment phase and then having a year without that time to practice that, you know, we're, we're just not, we're not nailing it the way we need to be. I know it. Our coaches know it. You see it. it. It's we're working on it. We're just not quite there yet. So Christy, one of the games I called, you actually reached out and said, you know, why don't you start asking coaches what their catchers can do to help out an umpire? So what is it those things that a catcher can do to help an umpire call a more accurate strike zone? The catch and drag doesn't fool us. Cut it out. <laughs> when you catch that ball over here and you slip it back into the middle of the zone, you just told us you didn't think it was a strike. Because if you think it's a strike, those catchers, man, they are sticking that pitch. When they know it's a strike, they're just, they're nice and still and their body is quiet, quiet body language. That's what we need. Anytime a, a, a catcher is dragging a ball in, into the strike zone, and there's a great little Facebook clip of this little nine-year-old kid and the ball is over his head and he jumps up and he catches the ball and he drops it back into the zone like, hey, Blue, that was a strike, right? Hilarious. When our catchers at this level, at this elite level, when they're doing that slight little jab, what we see is that nine-year-old that jumps up over his head and grabs the ball. That's how big that movement looks to us. So less movement, catch, hold a strike, play catch with a ball. So when that pitcher throws a ball to you and you know it's not a strike, you're playing catch with the, with the pitcher. Just catch it and throw it back. Don't hold it. Because when a, when a catcher is holding a ball that's not a strike, we lose our rapport with the catcher because then we know, man, that catcher's not being up front with us. So then on those borderline pitches that we're not sure and that catcher's holding it, well, she just held three balls in a row, the catcher can't help us. So if the catcher is honest and on those balls that are just balls, throw them back to the pitcher, hold the strikes, throw the balls back, then we get into a rhythm with the catcher. We develop a trust with the catcher. And on those borderline pitches, 
it helps us make a better decision on what's a ball and what's a strike. Quiet body Christy, movement is important as well. Sorry. I don't think I've ever been more excited on this podcast than listening to you say that because <laughs> you are like preaching my language. And for some reason, there's this really big movement that's happening because it's transferring over from, from baseball. And as, as the resident catching coach, it's something that really bothers me. And so I'm so happy that you just said that. Uh, when you were talking about umpires being teammates and getting and getting to hang out and, and even have them having travel ball reps. I think that was something when I was a freshman in college, I didn't realize. I think I thought you went to college and there's this new set of umpires all of a sudden. And I'll never forget my very first game that I caught. Um, I, I had an umpire who ended up telling me that they were getting married to one of my travel ball umpires. So it was Willie and Danny back then. So it was like so funny that I realized, oh my gosh, these people all hang out. They're all the same. They get all the same reps. So my question to you, because you're continuing to talk about reps, we need reps, we need practice. What beyond calling games are you guys doing, if anything, during this season to get better? Is there anything that you're doing actively beyond just calling games? You know, I wish I could say yes. And there's a million things that I could, that I could give you that we're doing. Um, right now, we're trying to survive the season. And I think what we're doing, the biggest asset that we have right now at the upper levels, and we unfortunately don't have this at the lower levels, and by lower levels, I mean D2, D3, some of our mid-major Division I games, is game film. And so what we do now, what most umpires do, as soon as the game is over, they're watching their game film. So shout out to ESPN and ESPN Plus. Thank you so much for having, uh, having our games on on the website so that we can go back and look. And so we go back and we look and we analyze our games. Um, I'm working with, with coaches right now that have the fancy cameras where they have the, the left side and the right side and the, and the high center field and the high home because the broadcast camera is, is, is for the wonderful viewing pleasure of our, our viewers at home, but it's off center. And so it doesn't give us an accurate look at, especially in and out. And those, those, those high, home and center field cameras give us a more accurate view at in and out and the the side cameras give us an accurate view of up and down and so many of the coaches are making their game films that they tag and they they just reduce it down to 20 minutes of pitch 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 available to us through a software program that we have um, on spot foul and so the umpires can go back and they can look at a more accurate view of their strike zone and they can self-correct if they're seeing trends, they can say, man, I'm always calling that rise ball a strike and it's not a strike. I have to recalibrate that that's not a strike. Um, in terms of, of other things, you know, many people don't know umpiring is not a full-time job. In softball, we do not pay our officials like we pay them in, in some other sports. In basketball, in football, they can be a full-time official referee, and that's all they have to do in their life. This is a part-time avocation for umpires. They all have full-time jobs. Almost all of them have full-time jobs. Um, some of the folks that are lucky enough to live in Florida or live in California where it's warm and there's, there's just softball year round, they can do it year round, um, but most don't. And so after the game, they're getting home. The, the, some of the umpires from the Georgia-Oklahoma game uh, last night got home at two in the morning and then got up at four in the morning to go to their regular job and work there, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. Um, 
that they have to work Monday through Thursday because they're off every Friday going to softball games. So it's just different. I think umpires do what they can. They watch their game films. They talk to one another. Um, they listen to the coaches. You know, there are some coaches that, that truly are very fair and very honest. And when we hear them chirp, that means, uh-oh, we need to self-analyze here because, you know, this coach never says anything to me and they are riding me now. I must be missing something. And then there are other coaches that just chirp all the time and they cry wolf. So that's not as helpful in the umpire helping know when there truly is a problem. Christy, I want to ask, um, and maybe you can explain a little bit more. I was, um, another thing that I was astonished by that you mentioned, uh, experience level um, and how hard this year was because you lost a lot of umpires before the season even started. So could you explain that to everybody? Yes. So in, in my leagues alone, I have five, five conferences that I assign. I lost over 40 umpires that opted out this year because of COVID, um, because they were fearful of their own safety or because they have a, a partner that if, if they go catch COVID and have to come home and then their partner has to quarantine, their partner is the primary breadwinner. And so they couldn't take those chances or they have children that have health issues or their, you know, their, their, their parents or their in-laws live in the home that have, you know, health issues that just, they couldn't take any chances with getting COVID or bringing COVID back to the house. And so to put that in perspective, um, a conference roster for me is about 60 people. 60 to 70 umpires is my conference roster. So to lose 40 umpires across the consortium, I lost 20, 25% of my umpires across the board at, at all levels. And so what that means is I, we had to bring up. So a lot of umpires uh, have opportunities this year to step up that they didn't have in the past, but that's they're also doing things new for the first time. I have some umpires working in the SEC, this is their first year in the SEC. Now they've worked non-conference games for years, you know, because I, they've been in the pipeline and I've been preparing them. But as a, a new umpire that I had a few years ago says, nothing prepares you to work in the SEC, but working in the SEC. Like it's just such a different experience. And so without having those reps, that, that's another thing where we have people working up that don't have the time and grade at that level that their crewmates do. And so there's, you know, it's like when you're a, when you're a senior and you have a freshman and you, you got to take that freshman under your wing and you got to teach them how we do things and you got to teach them their de decorum and their comportment and how they track that outside pitch and how they, you know, get a jump and steal second base. You have to teach them all those things. So not only are we coming back fresh from being off for a year for COVID, but we have umpires working at, at a new level that they're still, they're still freshmen at that level. And they're working hard and they're busting, they're busting their, their guts for me. And they are walking through fire for all of the coordinators and we appreciate them so much. They're still freshmen. Christy, you um, hopped on a call with us and you explained obstruction really well and just really simply with how you guys train it and what you look for. And I feel like a lot of our viewers and fans who follow softball, they're probably wondering like, what, what, what do you guys look for? Like, what is it that an umpire looks for in an obstruction call to indeed make an obstruction versus not obstruction? Okay. So you, you want my Christie speak, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You said it so simply and in your training way, and it just made sense. And I think it would help a lot of people understand it. Okay. So, uh, Obstruction, every runner has the right to get to the base without being impeded or hindered, right? Every, every defensive player also has a right to make a play 
on that runner. And so we have to find the fair balance between the two to give both players, offense and defense, an equal right to get to the base or to get the out. If we think of the area between the two bases that a runner is running, if we think about it as train tracks, and so we have an inside track and we have an outside track, the runner has to run you know, somewhere in between those, those train tracks. If they run outside the train tracks, then we have out of the baseline, and that's a whole different infraction. If a runner has to run out of the baseline to get around a defender, we say, huh, why is that? She should have a clear path to the base. So then we think about obstruction. If she has to run around somebody, well, maybe that somebody, maybe the defense is in the way. So if we think about that train track analogy, we think about the defense has to be outside of the train tracks if they don't have the ball. If they have the ball, then they can be anywhere they want. If they have the ball, they have the right of way. And they can, they can block out if they're in possession of the ball. If they don't have the ball, if the defender doesn't have the ball, then the runner has the right of way to get to the base. So now these are not rule book words. These are just Christie explanation words. So you can't say this on air or it, you can say it on air, but you have to just explain this isn't in the rule book. So if we think in terms of right of way, the defense has the right of way once they have the ball. So once upon a time when we all played and I was a catcher, we were taught block out and hope, hope that you catch the ball. Right? It was block and then catch, block and then catch. Well, now they have to catch the ball and then they can block out. So once they have possession of the ball, they can be all in front of all the train tracks and block out. When we think about the rule says um, the, the defense can't block the whole base or base path. So the base path is the train tracks without being in possession of the ball. So if they can't block the whole base or base path, by default, that means they can block some of the base or the base path. So then we have to figure out which some can they, can they block out. The defense doesn't have the right to tell the runner which part of the base she's allowed to get to. So if, if, the, if the shortstop, if we have a play at second base, the shortstop is standing on the inside track without the ball and the runner wants the inside track, the defense has to get out of the way until she gets possession of the ball because the runner has the right to go to either track. And when we think about plays at the plate, a real good visual marker is that what we call the foul line, it really should be called a fair line, but the foul line. So as umpires, we're looking at the position of the runner, the position of the catcher and the flight of the ball. The first thing we're gonna look at is the catcher's feet. If the catcher doesn't have the ball, her left foot needs to be in fair territory. It can be on the line. If her left foot is in foul territory at all, she's blocking the whole plate because the point of the plate is, is even with that fair foul line. So that's the first thing that we look at is if her left foot is in fair territory, she's good. If she's in foul territory, now we have obstruction. Now, if the runner is just rounding third base, then we have the timing of when all this happens. And that's what makes this so much more complicated. If she's standing straddling the foul line, if the catcher is straddling the foul line and the runner's rounding third base, that's obstruction, but there's not a play imminent. So we're going to give her the opportunity to recognize, oh, I'm standing in the wrong spot and move out of the way. So it's when the play is imminent that we're looking at is the defensive position hindering or impeding the runner's ability to have access to the base. Then when we look at plays at second base or even at the plate, 
we think of each base. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to take us back to our Star Trek days, right? Remember Star Trek and, and, and Captain Kirk stands on the little thing of light and he taps his logo and he says, beam me up, Scotty. And this tube of light comes up into the, into the sky. So each base has that tube of light that goes up into the sky. So the, so the, the area that the runner can get to is three-dimensional. And so when we talk about straddling a base, if the shortstop wants to straddle second base, they have to straddle second base somewhere behind that leading edge of second base so the runner can get to some part of that beam of light that's over the base. If she's straddling in front of the base path, even though her legs might be spread and the, the runner from first can slide through her legs, the runner also has the right to run through the base and run over top of the base. And so that's why they also have to be the, the shortstop or the second baseman, whoever's covering second base has to be behind the leading edge. So the runner has to be able to get to the tube of light. So they have to be able to get over the base of the plate, but they also have to be able to get to whichever part they want, the inside track or the outside track without being impeded or obstructed. Now, again, once that defensive person has the ball, all bets are off. She has the right of way. She can do whatever she wants in terms of blocking out her positioning. That's Christy speak. Star Trek, rain, tra you know, train tracks. If, if we can keep it real, everybody understands it. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, we, we get the train tracks and the beam of light, I think. Um, maybe it's sometimes more than the rule book, or I'm just speaking for myself, but thank you for that so much. The rule book is hard to read. You know, when I was coming up before we had our manual, I actually made flashcards. I had little three by five flashcards and I had to read the rule and say, okay, think of what this would look like. And I would have to draw a picture of it because it's really hard to read all of our, our words. You know, it's like reading a physics book. No, no offense to you physics majors out there, but it's, it's hard to read. And so you really have to digest what the words are saying and how that impacts our, our, our play. What play does this apply to? And it's difficult. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Christy. I think we all appreciate the time and uh, the explanations. And uh, we covered a lot of ground and I think very insightful for a lot of fans out there that were curious about some of the big, big moments and big plays that we've seen so far this season. So we thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'll be back anytime and I'm happy to serve as a reference for any of you. So thank you very much. And thank you for all you do. Uh, you add a wonderful element of our game that just makes viewing the games so much more enjoyable. So thank you for that. Thank All right. you. All right, everybody, stay safe. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. 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 Thanks, Christy. Bye.